morning. Welcome to our class, The Reign of Life, study of Romans 5 to 8. This is Sunday morning, May 10th. Uh, we are still in COVID-19 circumstances. And let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for a new day, the promise of your steadfast love and mercies that never cease. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, friend of sinners, our hope, our life, our Redeemer. And we give you praise and glory and honor for the privilege of being together and ask, Holy Spirit, you would teach us, you would take the word of God and use it to inform our thinking and grow us more into likeness, and increase us in diligence in our battle with sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, don't forget to hit your mute buttons at this point. Lower left corner, good to be muted unless you want to say something. So in, in this uh, circumstance, it's pretty much straight lecture, and so just bear with me in that. Make sure you've got the handout. It's called Indwelling Sin, Constant Conflict Within. will help you follow along. I'm working on backlighting. I realize my face is a little backlit. We're playing around with this, so bear with us. Question for you. Did you w wake up this morning terrified? Was your first thought, oh no, there is an enemy within trying to destroy me? Was your second thought after, I can't wait to get my coffee, if I don't battle indwelling sin, indwelling sin is going to ruin me today? Did you tell yourself, I'm my own worst enemy? Did you wake up terrified? Probably not, maybe for many reasons. Hopefully, because ultimately your soul rests in the love of God for you. You slept with and awakened with gospel confidence. But nonetheless, the place where Paul gets us in Romans 6, oozing with gospel confidence, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. When Paul gets into Galatians, uh, Romans 6, verses 11 and 12, we find the first two imperatives in the book of Romans. Remember from last week, the first imperative, verse 11, consider yourself, think about yourself, reckon yourself dead to sin. He immediately follows with another imperative, and that's verse 12, and this is what we're going to unpack for a couple weeks. Here's the imperative, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. So you'll want to live as a healthy, joyful, fruitful Christian today. you got to do that. Don't let sin reign. It wants to reign. It wants to reign in this mortal body. It will reign to make you obey its passions. So I just want to take some time to tease that out with you so that you have a thorough biblical understanding of what that means. Number one, clearly we are at war. The Bible wants you to know this. Here's our verse. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Sin wants to call the shots in you. It wants to have its way. It wants to be king. It wants to tell you, do this, don't do that. You're at war with sin this morning if, 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 uh, if you're in Christ. We'll see in a couple weeks in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter's saying, I want you to see yourself, your truest self, your soul, as that saint, that being in union with Christ, 
and at war with that within our passions of the flesh. This is the warfare that we're all under. We're all engaging in. We should be. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He assumes that the flesh is there with, with um, de desires that are seeking to be gratified. That's the assumption. It, it's, it's there. And, and, and the way around this is, walk by the Spirit. Now, we'll get in subsequent weeks to exactly what that looks like when we get to Romans 8. Right now, we just want to understand this call to arms. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. God has put desires in your heart for righteousness, for godliness, to seek him, to honor him, to love others, to read his word, to worship, to pray, to give thanks, all these things. Those desires are in you by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But the flesh is right there warring against those. That's the battle you woke up uh, in this morning. James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Here's relational breakdown in the family, the church, the community. What's the cause of those? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's the war. And then uh, Proverbs 19, uh, excuse me, Psalm 19.12 ends by asking, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Incidentally, what's the answer to the question, who can discern his errors? Well, it's the rest of the psalm, the person who has the word of God in front of them, the word of God informing, exposing what those errors are. And uh, David prays in verse 13 there, Psalm 19, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me. See, David knew what Paul's talking about. Let not these sins have dominion over me. Okay, clearly we're at war with sin. Number two, why does God tell you about this indwelling conflict? Simple, you must know your foe in order to defeat it or it will defeat you. That's true of Satan. Paul gives this reference in 2 Corinthians 2.11 so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we're not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. A lot of us are ignorant of the schemes of the devil. We can't be. Great book for you. Is it Thomas Brooks' um, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices? It's one of those Puritan paperbacks. It's a whole book full uh, of outlining. Uh, and somebody raise their hand if you've heard of that. Some of you have heard of it. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Phillips Brooks. He wrote A Little Town of Bethlehem. All right, so it's true of Satan. We're not going to go down that bunny trail right now. It's true of sin. Galatians 4, excuse me, Genesis 4, 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Remember how we said last week, that sort of sets up one of the questions of the entire Bible. How does it come about that sin doesn't rule over me? How, how do I win that battle? Of course, we find that answer in the work of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Did you wake up this morning saying, my heart is filled with life. My heart is filled with the spirit, but I've got to keep watch over it because sin is there ready to raise its rule and try to rule over me to assert this this, uh, this false tyranny, really. We don't have to let it rain. That's the point in Romans 6. We're no longer slaves to sin. You don't have to let it rain. 
you are free from that reign, although sin still wants to, tenaciously. So, 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul encouraging his young protege, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself. That's good advice for all of us. Now, I've referenced there back to verse 12 in 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. These are all the places where sin wants to disrupt and steal and erode and have assert its reign in all these areas. And he says to Timothy, keep watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in these things. For by uh, so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. It's, it's Paul's call to arms for young Timothy. Watch yourself. Watch your heart. Watch your doctrine for the sake of your salvation and those that you serve. So the next point is there's nothing, nothing sadder than someone living as a slave when, they, when they've been freed. If you're in Christ, you've been freed from the tyranny of sin. You, the power of sin is still there. Um, but you've been freed from its, the presence of sin is still there. You've been freed from its reign and you've been freed from its penalty. So Jesus is our victor. We're going to go on in that joy, but we're going to take very seriously this awful enemy within. Or you could put it this way. If a disease was killing your body, you'd want to know how it manifested itself and how it affected you, right? If, if the doctor said, you've got this disease, first question, hey, how is that manifesting itself in my body and how's it going to affect me? Same is true within sin. That's with indwelling sin. That's why we're doing the study. So just a little excursus here on the handout. Um, this isn't specifically on target, but I thought I might just help you show, uh, help you see a couple of um, marks of what a defeated believer looks like. So you can know, hey, is sin getting the better of me? How well am I battling indwelling sin? So I'm going to give you a couple marks. First of all, in relation to others, there's almost always relational strife and lack of love where sin reigns. Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So this is what sets Paul up for those verses about the spirit contending with the flesh, the flesh contending with the spirit. He's really framing it under these social obligations. We're going to destroy each other if, if we let sin reign in us. Uh, marks of, an, of a sin-defeated believer with respect to God. One way you can tell is you lose your spiritual appetites. This was true in part of the, the audience to which the book of Romans was directed. He, uh, excuse me, Hebrews. Hebrews 5.11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Here are people that aren't growing. A mark of growing is you're volunteering to help Melanie and teach in the Sunday schools, right? You want to teach the kids. You want to teach the adults. You want to teach those that you know. These, these believers were stuck, and they still needed to be given milk, not solid food. The writer of Hebrews would long to give them solid food. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I mean, this is one of the most damning things that is said of a New Testament church right here of the Corinthians. I fed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. 
For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh of behaving only in, human, in a human way? They've got the Spirit. They're not walking by the Spirit. The Holy, they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that. Have you not all been baptized into one body by one Spirit? 1 Corinthians 12. But they're just letting the flesh reign. And uh, Paul's rebuking them for that. And it's manifesting itself in relational strife. How about with relation to yourself? How do you know you're a sin-defeated believer? Well, your pride's out of control. You're basically living according to self-sufficiency, self-promotion, self-indulgence, self-defensiveness. Not that we don't fall into fits of these because we're human, we're frail, we're weak. All of these things are constantly plaguing us. We all stumble in many ways. Remember what James said. But when you're just given over to a lifestyle, an unbroken, unbridled lifestyle of these things, it's a good sign you're not thriving spiritually. You're letting sin reign. You're not battling this indwelling enemy. And then with respect to your circumstances, I know in my own heart where there's excessive fear, excessive worry, excessive anger, that is a mark of a sin-defeated believer. I'm not battling this indwelling sin. I'm letting it reign temporarily, giving it an unlawful uh, a seat on the throne of my heart and I need to get on that get it off there and get the spirit of God reigning and ruling so as we move on two reminders otherwise you're going to get too depressed about all of this study of sin first reminder this is not the way it's supposed to be remember from Romans 5:12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sin this is not the way God designed life. We weren't supposed to be battling sin. We were supposed to living, be living in utter peace and joy in the presence of God and with one another with nothing to battle internally, having the whole creation at our disposal and using it, being uh, thoroughly human. So battling sin is not the way it's supposed to be. It is the way it is because Adam and Eve absolutely blew it. Second reminder, grace is greater than your sin. So as we look at this battle with sin, we've got to constantly remind ourselves, no, I belong to Jesus. Romans 5, 17, we reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ, where sin increased, grace amounted all the more. The Puritans, <coughs> excuse me, used to say, for every one look you take at your sin, take 10 looks at Jesus. That, that, that's such good advice because it keeps us from becoming navel gazers. I mean, you've met Christians who you just get the sense it's just constantly, woe is me, woe is me. And they're, all they're doing is focusing exclusively on their sin. And yes, I'm inviting you. The scriptures are commanding you to understand sin. How does it work in you? Why is it there? All these things. That's the whole point of this handout in the next couple of weeks of study. But in, in all of this, we've got to constantly remind ourselves the love of Christ is greater the truth about me is I'm not a slave to sin. As real as my sin is to me, so much more real is the love of God for me. Okay. So, um, let's see. Oh, here, here's one way, to, one way to diagram it. Sort of Christians wake up in one of two postures. It's what side of the yet do you live? See, we all live uh, telling ourselves, can you see that? You can see it okay? All right. We all live on one side of the yet. A lot of times we wake up and we tell ourselves, oh yes, I'm loved by Jesus, yet I'm a mess. 
Or what I'm encouraging you to do is to wake up and say, I'm a mess, take indwelling sin seriously, yet I'm loved by Jesus. The point is, the last thing you tell yourself is sort of the direction that you're going to live. The last thing you tell yourself is the thing that shapes and frames your identity. And the gospel calls us not to say, oh, Jesus loves me, but I'm a mess, because then that's the thing you're going to focus on. No. You say, I'm a mess. I'm at war with sin. Sin's at war with me. Let's take this very seriously. You ultimately can't enjoy the love of God until you know the type of person that he's loving. He loves really big sinners. Wow! I'm a mess, yet I'm loved. Let the last thought that frames how you go about your day is, I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm loved. That's what you want to live out of, okay? What side of the yet are you living on? And this, look, it just takes mental discipline. It takes time. It takes getting the word of God out. It takes prayer. It takes asking the Holy Spirit to convince you of uh, how much greater God's love is for you than how real your sin is to you. Number three, Paul writes, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. What's the meaning of the therefore? Paul states the impertival implications of the facts. How do you like that phrase? That's just a fancy way of saying, as we said at the beginning, these are imperatives. And Paul's giving you the facts of your union with Christ. What's, if you're by faith united to Jesus Christ, what's true of Christ is true of you. So what are the implications of that in terms of imperatives? And here's, here's our little summary of Romans 6 up until this point. You were in union with Adam at peace with sin and correspondingly at war with God. So you can't be at peace with sin and, and, not, and not be at war with God because God's at war with sin. In union with Adam, you were at peace with sin and at war with God. You are now in union with Christ, at peace with God through the spoils of Christ's victory, and at war with sin. So there's only two kinds of people in the world. People that are at war with sin or people that are at peace with sin. If you're at war with sin, it's because of the work of Christ freeing you from the reign of sin, uniting you to himself lavishingly uh, on you uh, all his promises and spoils of his victory. I like to think of it this way. If you read through Deuteronomy, Moses warns the Israelites. He says, you're going to come into a land and you're going to occupy cities you didn't build. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. And you're going to enjoy gardens and vineyards you didn't build. What a picture of grace, Right? What a good deal. All we need to do is follow God, come in, and it's going to be instant neighborhood, instant houses, instant gardens, fabulous stuff. This is, this is a picture of the spoils of Christ's work for us. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been set free from sin by Jesus Christ. We're accepted in God's eyes through Jesus Christ. All the spoils there. All that remained for Israel to do was to protect themselves from the forces that wanted to destroy them from the outside. So they had all these principles of holy war. This is holy war for the believer. We have the spoils of Christ's victory. Now the call in these verses is, is to protect your heart from indwelling sin's attempts to destroy those in you. Okay, 
Let not sin, therefore sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its passions. Let's focus on the phrase in your mortal body. This is point number four. So I've teased out a bunch of words that come to mind as we begin to try to understand what are the implications of sin reigning in this mortal body. They all begin with D. Shocking, I know. So first of all, what are the implications of sin reigning in your mortal body? That's this thing, this skin and bones, this rental, as John Foreman calls it in one of his songs. This is a rental we're in. We're just waiting for the brand new, uh, brand new permanent car when we get to heaven for our glorified bodies. Here's some words that describe this. Desperation, sins at war with you, within you, undermining godly intentions. We'll see when we get into Romans 7 how Paul... The way he sees himself is no longer as a sinner. Look at Romans 7, 17 from the handout. When he thinks about not doing the things he wants to do, doing the things he doesn't want to do, he says, so now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And then verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he has this amazing capacity. Yes, he's completely responsible for his actions. He would never die that. We all are. We're responsible for our actions. But when he sees himself giving in, letting sin reign in those temporary fits of insanity, spiritual schizophrenia, wait, don't let sin reign. It, it has no claim on your heart. The Lord Jesus is king in your heart. But when we let it reign, he is saying, oh, it wasn't I doing that. The true I is a saint. I'm indwelt. I'm a new creation. I'm that person that's that's indwelt by the spirit of Jesus. It's no longer I doing it, but indwelling sin that's doing it. So he has this capacity to see himself in these two terms. So there's a desperation within. Secondly, there's a duration. Indwelling sin is never absent in this life, and you will battle it until the day you die and you're set free forever uh, when your body dies. So we have sin with us till we die. James 3.1, we all stumble in many ways. Paul unpacks this in 1 Corinthians 15 in his famous chapter on the resurrection when he writes this, 1 Corinthians 15, 43. Your earthly body is sown in dishonor when, when it's buried. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it's written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. That's the joy of Jesus being raised from the dead to give his spirit to cause his loved ones, his elect, to be born again by the Holy Spirit and be indwelt by the Spirit. Jesus is a risen, life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. That's you if you're in union with Christ by faith. Just as we born the image of the man of dust, right? We're all made in God's image. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What is that? It is in our raised resurrection bodies we will bear the image of Jesus in perfect holiness and righteousness. We will be in bodies that cannot sin, not able to sin. Glory. That's what we have to look forward to. 
And the more you battle indwelling sin in this life, the more appealing and attractive that is. We're teasing out implications of sin reigning in this mortal body. C, the destiny of believers is a sinless land where righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3.13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, the more you love God, the more you love his cause, the more that's the place you want to live. The more you love God, the closer you get to the heart of God, the more you sense the stench of sin in this world, your own and that of others. You don't feel at home here. You have a citizenship somewhere else. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Why aren't those things in the new heavens and the new earth? Because there's no sin. Sin is the thing that brings the mourning, the crying, the pain, the sorrow, the death. No sin, no dying. No sin, nothing to mourn over. No sin, no pain. Yay, that's what we're looking forward to. What is the meaning of sin reigning in your mortal body? D, depravity is radical. Now, I'm using radical in a technical sense. You've probably heard of the uh, doctrine of our Reformed theology called total dep depravity. That does not mean we're as bad as we could be. By common grace, we're not as bad as we could be. But I like R.C. Sproul's take on this. He calls it radical corruption. And he points out that radical is from the Latin radix, which means root. So we're corrupt at the root of who and what we are. So let's tease out some of the implications of this. This depravity is radical. It's present from conception. David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. Not the act of conception, but the fact that right at conception, David has a sinful nature. That means that you and I should assume that in our hearts and in dwelling sin is the seed of every conceivable sin. There are probably some sins you'd say, I've never really been tempted by that sin. Great, praise God. The truth is, we could all give in to every kind of temptation. The seed of every sin is in your heart. Lord, keep me back from these things. Don't let them reign over me. So it's present from conception. I like how, I think I pointed this out in my, my sermon last week, how Jesus is teaching his um, He's teaching his disciples to pray, and, he, and he's reasoning from the lesser to the greater. He says in Luke 11, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more should Heavenly Father give his Holy Spirit to you, you know, who ask? He just sort of says in a matter-of-fact way, You're evil. Why? You were born in sin. Uh, we, have to, we have to know we live in a culture that is hopelessly given in to the humanistic idea that people are basically good. This is what kids are taught in public schools. This is a massive lie of the devil. People aren't basically good. According to Jesus, we're naturally evil. There it is. Plain, simple facts. So, depravity is radical. It's present from conception. Next thing I want you to see is it affects your thinking. And this is one of the, uh, one of the things that our, our, our grandfather in the, in, the, uh, in the Christian counting faith, Jay Adams, pointed out to us decades ago, he talked about the noetic 
effects of sin. I don't know if you can read that. It's from the Greek word noose, which is the word for mind. And Jay helped us understand, uh, and of course the Puritans before him, how sin affects all of us. We are, we are depraved entirely. It affects our mind, our bodies, our emotions, our wills, etc. All I'm focused on here now is, is the, uh, the effect of sin on our thinking. And this has been a debate throughout church history how, how affected human beings' thinking is because of the fall, how depraved it is, how unable it is to think accurately and truly. This is a debate among Bible believers. Uh, I fall out as the Reformed teaching falls out that sin corrupts our thinking. See if, uh, see if you agree, given what Paul says in Romans 1.21. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. The idea of futility here is not reaching its goal, not going anywhere. And what should be the goal of human thinking? It should be to think God's thoughts after him. It should be to think thoughts that conform with the way life really is. It's to see, to appraise, to think about nature, reality, exactly as God tells it is. And of course, tells us it is. And of course, we can't do that apart from God's interpretation of it in his word and left to ourselves. We'll never get it right. This is what sin has done to our thinking. It keeps us from thinking accurately about self, life, and God. And that's what the Bible calls death. We'll see when we get to Romans 8. Paul writes 5 through 8, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds uh, on the things of the flesh. See, if you're still in the flesh, if you're in union with Adam, if you're this person where sin has dominion over you, your mind is going to be set on the flesh, the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, if you're in union with Jesus, you live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Take your pick, life and peace or death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Unbelievers are fundamentally unable to obey God. They're at liberty to, but they have no ability to because of this, uh, this, the noetic effects of sin in their thinking. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's an awful place to live, isn't it? It's not where believers live. We have our minds set on different things. We've, we've got a new mind along with a new heart. Ephesians 4.17, Paul's encouraging the believers there. He says, now look, I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't go back to thinking the way you thought before you were created. And there's this phrase again. He says, in the futility of their minds, there was a worldview, there was a way of thinking, there was a way of appraising self, family, work, reality, nature, creation, all these things. There were appraising those that went nowhere that was futile, that didn't accomplish its goal. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. See how all this fits together? Without light from God's word, it's just darkness. We can't understand who God is without light from his words because our minds, we don't have light from God. 
um, for these things. We get that through the Holy Spirit. Their understanding is darkened, their hearts are hard, and they become callous. So there's almost getting used to it, and that part of us that, was, that should be sensitive to the workings of God becomes callous, and he says they've given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I think the New American Standard says, with a continual lust for more. Sin never says enough. When you give, as we're going to see in this handout, when you give yourself over to sin, it's never satisfied. It always wants more. That's one of the things Paul is hinting at here. Okay. Depravity is radical. It's present from conception. It infects your thinking. It enslaves your will. There's this provocative picture in Proverbs 5.22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast by the cords of his sin. So when we keep giving in to sin, it just kind of wraps a rope around our hearts and you give in, it just becomes tighter, 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 more and more difficult to change. We need Jesus to come in by his spirit and set us free from those shackles. Jesus said in John 8, 34, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The ESV is trying to bring out there what's true of the present tense in the Greek language. Some of your translations say, whoever sins is a slave to sin, and you go, whoa, wait a minute. That's me, I still sin. Does that mean I'm a slave to sin? No, Paul's telling me I'm not a slave to sin. I'm freed from the dominion of sin by virtue of being in union with Jesus Christ, who's through with that reign. He died to sin in his resurrection. What, what, Jesus, what the translators are bringing out there is in the, in the Greek language, the present tense means an ongoing, continuous, habitual way of life. And Jesus is saying, if sin hasn't been, as a pattern, hasn't been broken you, basically he's saying, if you're still living under the reign of sin, as if sin has dominion over you, you're its slave. He's really, Paul's really echoing in his writing what Jesus taught here. So it's important to bring that out in the present tense in the Greek. Uh, next, next page, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. Every parent needs to know this. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So you have these sweet little babies, and for, you know, what, six months, a year, 18 months, it's like they can do no wrong, how sweet. But then you begin to see behavior that, I didn't teach them that. I didn't encourage them to disobey me, to thwart my will. I, you see all this little depravity in these precious little creatures. That's because folly is bound up in their hearts. They were born with it. And one of the goals of parenting is to discipline in such a way that that folly becomes distasteful to the kid. And they realize when I act according to that folly, there are really bad consequences. Anyway, I'm not going to do a, a lesson on how to parent. The point is, uh, I think this is a verse about total depravity, that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And guess what? If you didn't have parents that helped you deal with that, it's still in your heart. It's still, it's still going to affect you. Forms of folly. Galatians 4.8, Paul writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's, he's referring to that slavery there. 2 Peter 2.19, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. So if there's something you have to have, you have to have it, it's your king. You're a slave to it. 
Back to Romans 1.24. <clears throat> Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. This is a, a very fearful thing where God looks at a situation in a human being or a human culture and uh, human beings want something, uh, a, a, a certain type of sin, and God gives them over. He basically says, my hand of restraint, my common grace hand of restraint that keeps this world from being as evil as it could. There are times when God says, okay, I'm taking that off and I'm giving you over to all of those things that you desire. Man, that, that's a horrible, fearful, terrifying place for a human being to be. You know, beg God that he wouldn't give you over, our culture over, to the loss of their hearts and impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Because they, and why, why does this happen? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You can never have a good life when you've exchanged the truth of who God is and you live by a lie. Okay. One more here, uh, sin is blind to the fact that it blinds. Sin, so think of the, you, know, you see those blinders on horses. It keeps horses from being distracted. It keeps the horses just very narrow, focused on the road. I'm not a big, I'm not a horse guy, but I'm sure that's the way blinders function. They keep the horse from being spooked or scared or distracted uh, like this. So this is what sin does. It creates a very myopic, narrow view of things. Well, you, you can't live if, if, if all you're looking at, basically, I, was, it, uh, was it Luther who described man as uh, curved in on himself? That's, a, that's just a great description of what sin does. Sin blinds us to the way things are. We don't get the full picture. And uh, this, is, this comes out in, in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees at the end of John 9. Some of the Pharisees near Jesus heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? In other words, they're saying, are you saying we don't get it spiritually? I think they were, I think they were wanting Jesus to say, oh, you guys, you're so religious, you got it together. You're the only people on earth that really get things spiritually. Are we also blind? Are you saying we're, uh, we don't get it? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So sin would have us think, I'm not blind spiritually. I get it spiritually. And, and that is what spiritual blindness is. So the way to spiritual health is saying, oh, I get it. I don't see the way, the first step to getting it is to know that you don't get it. The first step to sight is to know that you're blind. Okay, uh, I love this verse in Proverbs 4.18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Isn't that a great picture? Here, here's the, the, you know, Proverbs is written as a parent to a child, and the parent is saying, I'm going to set you on the path that's safe. You can never hurt yourself. It's the path where you find a light in God, where life works. It's the path of life. Uh, you stay on it. You're not going to get hurt by things. But at the beginning, that's not altogether clear to you. So it's like starting out in early morning. You can, you know, you can see the path, 
but the sun hasn't risen. But the longer you're on it, the sun comes up, the path becomes clearer, and the longer you live according to the God's ways, the clearer they make sense to you. Yes, that is good for me. Yes, there is danger over there. So the rising of the sun, the full sun, shows us the goodness of the path. In contrast to that, is, uh, this is verse 19 of Proverbs 4. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. So you got to picture people in ancient Israel. They didn't have city lights. They didn't have anything lighting up the sky. You went out to go somewhere on a path. Everything was past, and it was pitch black. You couldn't see. Well, you think you're doing just fine, but you're stumbling over these roots, stumbling over these rocks, and there are these poisonous snakes fighting on the side just ready to bite you. Okay, that's the way of the wicked. It, they're blind to the fact that they don't know. They don't get it. Let's move on to the skews your emotions. And this, a, 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 wait, let's remind ourselves, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Grace is greater than your sin. This is not the way it's supposed to be. There's more grace in this world than there is sin. Yay. Now back to the bad stuff. Sin skews your emotions. I'm taking this from Galatians 5. We're, remember, we saw this battle internally, the spirit against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. And Paul wants you to know what those things look like. He, he's explicit. In fact, I worked on a handout for you this week about all the different lists of sins that we find in the Bible. We'll look at those subsequently when we do an excursus on the subject of temptation. But look how he, how he writes it. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. They show themselves. They manifest themselves. You can tell. They're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, so many social implications of unbridled sin, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. This is just a partial list. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, sin, I'm going one more point I think here. I'm looking at the clock. It's 9.58. Sin would have you complacently not take it seriously. Sin doesn't want you to wake up knowing uh, you're at war with it. Sin doesn't want you battling it. It wants to have free reign. Okay? Sin would have you complacently not take it seriously. And this is from the end of Proverbs 1, 32. The simple are killed by their turning away, ultimately turning away from Lady Wisdom, God's way of understanding life and ourselves. And the complacency of fools destroys them. This, this false sense of peace, this feeling at ease, this everything's okay with me, everything's okay with the world. No, it's not. You're either at war with sin or sin is killing you. That's, that, there's, there's no such thing as complacency uh, in, in that situation. Um, I think I'll stop there, seeing that it's 9.59. Um, uh, yeah, okay. So, make sure you live on what side of the yet? I'm a mess, yet I'm loved. Make sure you remember, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And there's more grace in this world through the reign of Jesus, the reign of life for me than sin. Glory to God. So let me pray for us. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. 
Thank you, Lord, for their interest in the word of God, their desire to grow spiritually, their love for you. Above all, thank you for your love for them. What a love it is. What you endured to set us free from sin. What you suffered to bear sin, our sin's penalty in your body. This should stagger us. It should stun us. Uh, it should cause us to stand in awe. It should cause us to wonder. It should cause us to love you. It should cause us to see you as ravishingly beautiful uh, and immeasurably powerful and irrepressibly merciful. Let us live in these graces. Give us grace to live on the I'm loved side of the yet. Yes, we're a mess. We need to take this seriously. Yet we are loved. Let my brothers and sisters know how precious they are to you. How great is your love. Love that's greater than our sin. Uh, thank you for them. Give us grace to battle sin, this indwelling monster, to battle it by the power you supply and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. We'll continue in this handout next week. Um, I'm going to predict we'll finish it. And there's more to come. So thank you all. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. That was